Hello and welcome to the 81 All Out podcast. Like many of you listening, I am deeply saddened by the tragic events that are unfolding in India. Some of my closest friends have been directly affected by the coronavirus, either because they have tested positive and they are recovering, or because they are grieving after the loss of their loved ones. We at 81 All Out um, have been discussing how we can show our solidarity. Uh, for what is happening and how we can contribute so we have decided that um, you know all the funds that we receive uh, for the support of our show we have decided that over the months of may and june it will be donated to unicef which is currently uh, raising funds for the fight against covid in india they are delivering vital supplies and uh, they are providing valuable support on the ground um, for our part we have decided to match your contributions for up to 800 us dollars and uh, we hope that will be a small contribution in this uh, big big fight against this virus so please follow the link in the show notes as you usually do uh, we understand that you can donate to any organizations that you wish in your own capacity but in this case uh, b2 will be matching that amount uh, till a certain cap and for whatever you donate in may and june uh, we'll go towards that and we will also be contributing in the ashes are taken india win they come back for the second india have won the test match india have won the series they're going to get back for two india home lords goes wild Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan uh, and I'm joined by my co-host uh, Mahesh. Hi Mahesh. Hope all is well. Yep. And uh, we're thrilled today to uh, you know be recording the 100th episode of the 81 All Out podcast, which is wow. probably 80 more episodes or 85 more episodes than what we had foreseen <laughs> when we started. but uh, yeah it's been a great ride and uh, thank you to all our listeners and generous supporters so hopefully we'll continue podding anyway so to celebrate this milestone uh, you know this is a podcast so we can't really raise anything but what we have done is we've got a special special guest along uh, gideon hague an author and writer who both of us who we deeply admire and uh, on his website Uh, Gideon refers to himself as an independent cricket journalist which is probably like the biggest understatement anyone has ever made about anything but well it's it is a probably a fact that he is an independent cricket journalist and uh, i like this part, one part of his website where he has this uh, page called things i like and among other things he lists michelangelo's david middle march and peppa pig as well as chris tavrid's forward defensive stroke so that sort of gives you an idea of gideon's encyclopedic range and knowledge and everything and so welcome to the show gideon thank you so much for joining us oh it's nice to be here what a privilege to be part of your 100th show <laughs> it's a great privilege for us gideon and you were telling us that you're becoming some kind of a podcasting veteran these days <laughs> podcasting whore it seems like I'm selling my favors pretty cheaply in fact uh it's almost as though we um I, i do more podcasting now than i do writing 
Uh, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, the, new, it's the new blogging, isn't it? It's the new blogging. Pretty soon we'll be pogging or vodding or something <laughs> like that. But, uh, but yeah, we, um, I seem to spend a lot of time talking about cricket and, um, and less time than I'd like writing about it. But, uh, but there you go. You've got to go with the market, don't you? Well, yeah, that's the sign of the times, as I was telling you. Maybe, you know, a book as a podcast, maybe your next book as a complete podcast, five hours maybe. <laughs> I did actually once um, do an audio book of The Vincibles, my, my book on my club season, and it took ages to do. I thought it was a quite a short book. It seems to take bloody hours. It seemed to be longer than the season to read it out. <laughs> I, yeah. I try and do it on your office book. I think you'll stop entertaining the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so we're here today to talk to Gideon about his uh, book on Vaughan that he published in 2012, which uh, is a remarkable book for uh, you know various reasons. And I've actually never spoken to Gideon about it, though I've read it uh, multiple times. And um, it, it's a fascinating book because um, it takes this great cricketer and sort of captures almost so much about him in that little volume and uh, the structure and the writing and everything is great. I mean, I'm sure somebody who picks up the book 50 years later, hopefully it's still around, will completely understand what it meant to be living in the age of uh, mm. Shane Vaughan and also watching cricket in the 90s and 2000s. Mm. So Gideon, um, what, the first book I read of yours was actually Mystery Spinner by right. Jack, uh, about Jack Iverson. And it seems like such a contrast to me that here you, you have this obscure cricketer who you decided to mm. unearth. Mm. And then here you have, you're writing about the most famous cricketer who perhaps the most famous cricketer Australia has produced after Bradman. Well, one was my idea and one wasn't. Yeah, Mystery Spinner was my idea because um, uh, I, I went to the same school as Jack Iverson and I was fascinated by the fact when I was growing up that while we memorialised the other test cricketers who'd come from Geelong College, Lindsay Hassett and Paul Sheen and Ian Redpath, there was no trace of Jack Iverson. But I knew he'd been to the school. I just couldn't find any sort of evidence that um, that we'd played a part in his uh, in his cricket creation. And that sort of made me think, well, oh, I'd like to find out more about this this player. It was very difficult to do so because he his his career had been vanishingly brief. And he disappeared into obscurity. Virtually the only thing that I knew about him after his career was that he'd taken his own life. Uh, so with clutching those few facts, I, I went off in search of him. And the book is partly about the, about the search for the, for the biographical material as well as the biography itself. Of course, with Warren, yes, you're quite right. It's the opposite. The, the question here was sort of squeezing him down to human proportions because he seemed to be everywhere. He seemed to be in the atmosphere, in the gyprock of the, of the walls. Uh, once he'd grown up in, uh, in the 90s and 2000s in Australia, it was, he was kind of inescapable and, and all-consuming. Uh, but it wasn't my idea. In some ways, it was, perhaps it was too obvious an idea for me to come up with. My publisher, Ben Ball, said to me one day, well, why don't you do a book about Warren? And I thought... You know that's that's an interesting idea to 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 sort of bring him down to to a scale where he could be um, uh, treated between between covers, but I'd have to find a way to to do it that didn't simply do Warren from from A to Z. I could do do Warren D L Q and W, uh, but that's a, but but Warren in that sense is a gift because his story is so well known. That you don't actually need to recapitulate it at length. You can actually just pick the eyes out of it. 
uh, you can concentrate on those things that 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 are closest to elucidating the uh, the legend. I chose my time advisedly. Uh, 2012 was a few years after he'd stopped playing even T20 cricket, so it was possible to remember him at his at his very peak uh, and to cherish those particular memories. And he hadn't quite. He was on the. He was in the process, perhaps, of phasing into being a sort of a twenty-four-seven social media uh, self-parody. Uh, but I wanted to get him before that stage. So, uh, so it was um, uh, it was good advice from from Ben and a great opportunity, which I uh, seize with both hands. Is it true that you wrote this book in one month? Yeah, yeah. It was it was a thirty-one day month though, <laughs> so, <laughs> as I sometimes put out. It was March. Um, but <laughs> yeah, March 2012. Yeah, but but um, it's it's amazing to me because for a book that's been written in such a sp- speed, uh, it still comes across as reading it. I mean, I had no idea about this one month period until Mahesh told me recently. But mm. until but what I can see in this book is like a lifetime worth of uh, mm. observing and yeah. experience that has actually gone into it. It's so much more than, I mean, it's amazing when people say he wrote a book in X number of days, mm. but the lead up to the X number of days oh, is sure. what eventually counts. Yeah, Sure. I've done a lot of reading and a lot of thinking and a lot of writing and a lot of watching of, of Warren before I got to that point. Simple fact is that 2011-12, I'd been busy covering a tour, been busy covering, I think, the, um, the Indian tour of Australia. Just hadn't had time to get around to doing it. So you know, I sat down at the um, at the end of that um, uh, end of that season and thought, right, okay, well, how will I do this? And in some ways, it benefited from being done quickly uh, because um, you just took the phone off the hook and you you, know, you slammed the door behind you and you and you started writing. And I also decided that it was important to enjoy it because what was worn about, if not enjoyment. There was sort of no particular pain or angst to access in the in the Warren story. It was just a it was just a hayride. And um, you know, if you couldn't enjoy running about Warren, then you really had to reconsider your vocation. Absolutely. Um, you didn't think of uh, the structure is interesting for me because you've gone with uh, you know the- thematic rather mm. than chrono- chronological. You've uh, gone with the art of Warren. Uh, sorry, the making of Warren, the art of Warren. The men of Wan, the trials of Wan, and the mm. sport of Wan, yeah, um, which is again structurally quite different, I would think, compared to the Iverson or any of the, or even sure, the big yeah. ship, yeah. Uh, the big ship, the uh, fantastic biography of uh, Warwick Armstrong. Um, so again, what were the thoughts on that? Did, was that your way to sort of condense the whole thing rather than going more? Uh, say encyclopedic. Well, Sid, you're, no, crediting, you're crediting me with more artist craft than I actually have. <laughs> I think I just sort of just started writing, and uh, at various points, I seem to have written enough. And then I thought, oh well, I'll come in from this angle and this angle. I, I don't do a lot of planning. I really don't. I, you know, I just sort of you plan as you write. Uh, in fact, the, the the plan that kind of governs your writing is is. Um, is the enemy of, of good writing because you you should be you should be enjoying it you shouldn't be executing you shouldn't be writing up like you're writing a, an academic report you should actually be just allowing the story and your thoughts to to shape themselves on the run and I guess I've done you know, I've written a lot a lot of books now so I'm kind of I know that this kind of approach works but I don't actually need to do a lot of uh, premeditation uh, I can just do it I can shape it shape it on the wheel, if you like, 
rather than having to uh, to, to work from a uh, from a from a blueprint. Um, I think you know I'd had various <clears throat> little half formed thoughts about Warren in his career, which I'd never had the opportunity to kind of uh, fulfil or complete. So in that sense, it was uh, it was fun to 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 execute that or to see some of those thoughts through to fruition. Um, and, at, and at a certain point, I just stopped. It seemed like, well, I'd run out of time. <laughs> I couldn't write anymore. So, but at a certain point, it just seemed like, yeah, that's, that's the point at which to stop. I could have written another five chapters in the same vein, but it kind of had a sort of a, 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 a uh, it was a fiver, if you like, the five chapters. Um, I don't necessarily believe in numerology, but they did seem to uh, to, to capture Warren satisfactorily. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you that uh, you know the obviously the writing comes first, and then hmm. everything else comes afterwards. But there must have been some point of time when uh, you know you decided that these were the directions in which the book would take, uh, rather than you know that or did that happen right at the end? Did I oh. hate to disappoint you, but <laughs> I got to the end of it. Yep, job done. <laughs> well, okay, that's one way to do it. But that's um, that's like that's as misleading as the one month uh, time. <laughs> right? I mean, you don't write you don't write it in one month. I mean, the the kind of observations that you make, even about him basically rubbing the ground and how he attains that earthen quality, yeah. it comes from over years of watching and over years of forming these pieces in your mind. So one month is just putting the puzzles together. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. It uh, it was yes, it was a it was a lifetime in the in the preparation but uh, but a month in the writing. Uh but, but I reached the end of it thinking that um I'd enjoyed it. You know, I, and that I might have more things to say but I might end up just repeating myself. And also look, you know, Warren's a cricketer. There's this there's no point in writing sort of 500 1000 word books about him. He's a great cricketer. He's an incredibly enjoyable cricketer to watch. But it shouldn't become a chore or a labour to have to go over his career. It should be zesty. It should be um, impressionistic. It should be vivid. And it should be brief because, you know, Warren was there for a, for a, a good time, not a long time. Did it also help, Gideon, that uh, you too are from Melbourne and grew up in Melbourne and yeah, also... Sure. Uh, pretty much uh, would have seen the Melbourne that Vaughan saw when he was growing up. In fact, there is some lovely passages in the book talking about the uh, media's ecosystem and also mm. the general state of uh, the relationship between the famous and the public at, uh, yeah. when, in the 70s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it also helped being roughly the same age as Vaughan. You know, he's four years younger than I am. He's the same age as my younger brother. Uh, in some respects, he's a, he's a kind of a kid brother figure. You know, he's the guy who plays up, who takes liberties, who uh, who enjoys himself, and is occasionally a source of embarrassment, but ultimately has a good heart. Yeah, you know, that's that's the way in which we often look upon our our kid brothers. Uh, and the other thing, of course, is that I had had the opportunity to interview him during his career. Uh, I think I'd done half a dozen quite long interviews with him. I'd always found him a very agreeable um, and accessible uh, interview subject with certain apprehensions. You know, certainly early on in his career, he treated the media with uh, a mixture of sort of an alternation between sort of naivety and circumspection before he became that kind of 
master of manipulating the media. You know, in some respects, Warren was as adept at manoeuvring the media as he was at sort of moving the batsman round the crease. And you sort of, because I had the opportunity to intersect with him at various times in his career, I did have a feeling for that process of, of maturation. Fantastic. Um, there was one uh, point that really struck out for me where you're talking about that uh, famous uh, test in Sri Lanka in 1992, the SSE mm. test, where yeah, Vaughan yeah. basically uh, bowls Australia to victory by getting those three wickets right yes. at the end. Uh, and the point that you make there was... Uh, by the time that you were trying to find out about, uh, you know, Border's instinct for using Vaughan mm. at that point, and also what the Vaughan situation at that point where he had taken, I think, one for 346. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that, you know, the everything else seemed preordained. It's almost yes. like, yeah, it was almost like it was impossible for you to go back into that state yes. where yes. Vaughan was still uh, no, largely a nobody. Yes, yeah, it was. It, you know, the, it was. It was. The, the legend had become so encrusted that uh, that everything looked uh, foreordained. I think the one thing that I was able to uh, to uh, conclude from that moment, though, assessing it on its on its merits, was that Warren, the presence of Warren, or the or the aura of Warren, encouraged Alan Border, who was kind of like the ultimate sort of roundhead captain, to be more of a cavalier. To, to throw the dice, to take a chance. And that was something that, um, that, that succeeding Australian captains were going to enjoy, that, that opportunity. He, he made them look a better captain because they were able to throw him uh, the ball and uh, unleash this attacking weapon. Uh, leg spin up until that moment, I think, in Australian uh, or recent Australian history, had been looked upon as a rather expensive luxury not the kind of thing that necessarily had a place in the increasingly uh, uh, rational and uh, and scientific approach to, a, to to cricket that had become uh, part and parcel of the game in the um, in the eighties. So now I just had for a brief moment I had a revisionist history of everything I have known and thought about Mark Taylor as a captain. If he he gave that sort of liberty for border, and then Mark oh, Taylor yeah. came into the Test team after one was fully formed. Yes. He could have been a very different captain without one being in the team. I've always thought that, uh, that the mythology of captaincy is hugely overestimated. It is all about the players that you've got and the, the faculties that they have and the strength of the opposition. And uh, we do sort of, we do imbue captains with strange sort of magic. In fact, they really, I think, only affect the game to a degree of about 5%. But we're very heavily invested in that idea, aren't we? Especially, Absolutely. I would think, with the uh, really strong teams, yeah. <clears throat> I would think the effect of captaincy goes down that much more rather yeah. than, say, captaining a weak team that's just about on the cusp of becoming good. Maybe yes. captaincy may make yes. slightly. But I feel like the Clive Lloyds and the Mark Taylors get a bit too much, and the Steve Wars get a bit too much credit for mm. what. Uh, what their players essentially were doing, which was excellence. Yeah, yeah. The best captains, um, I, I think, um, are those who, um, you know, a, a player leaves the dressing room and feels as though they played to the the full extent of their um, of their capabilities, and perhaps even slightly beyond them. I think Ian Chappell, actually, in the in the in the mid nineteen seventies, 
I think, you know, particularly if you look at that uh, team that he took to England in 1972, it's not a particularly strong team. And England are about as strong as they got in that period. But uh, but he matched England um, uh, game for game. And two, two all um, is... Uh, is a fair is a fair reflection of the of the strides that uh, that that Ian made. You know, if you look at the players who are in that side, you know, your Rod Marshes and your Dennis Dillies, they become great players greater on later on, but they're not great players at that point. Um, they're the in point, the process yeah. of being made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, talking about Ian Chappell, though, uh, the very first time I met Vaughan, which was part of a press. Uh, which was at uh, those, uh, what do you call those? Uh, press events that you have before the series yeah. where you just, the press gathers around one player, like we're like a pack of animals trying to get the most of them. Which I, which I well, you'll have, I've never been to one, I can't be asked. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine that. But anyway, so I thought I was doing this, um, I, I thought I was being this really clever guy and I asked Shane Warne about whether he thinks he would have been the perfect cricketer in the 70s. And then what followed was... Uh, about a five-minute talk about Shane Warren looking back at the 70s when he wasn't even a player, but he was so nostalgic about the time that he didn't even know too much about. And all these other journalists are like, why are you wasting our time by asking him this (laughs) question? (laughs) But I thought I'd done a great job. But your book makes a really good point about how, you know, who knows if Shane Warren would have even made it had he been playing in the 70s. No, no. He arrived at the perfect time when uh, the academy had been created, but there was still a kind of uh, licence and discretion to be an individual. Um, uh, it had become sufficiently professional a game to support Warren, but not sufficiently um, uh, rigid and bu- bureaucratised to, uh, to discourage Warren. Uh, I think Warren would have, even five years later, Warren might have fallen at the first hurdle. And, uh, and vanished into into obscurity. And the 1970s, uh, he would never have been able to balance uh, a semi-professional cricket career with the need to, to earn a livelihood outside the game. He just didn't have that in him. So uh, so he's a cricketer perfectly um, of, of, of his time. He might identify with those 1970s cricketers, but I think he's got a very superficial understanding of what their ecosystem was really like. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you name, um, I think, about five or six uh, spinners who just disappeared into oblivion and he could have easily been one of them as well, right? Yeah. But but though, having said that, there seems to be uh, something natural about Ian Chappell's love for Vaughan, though. It's almost like he wished he had a cricketer like Vaughan in the team that he captained. That's a good point, actually. That's a good point. They certainly got on very well. Uh, I think... That's partly because of the uh, the, the natural deference that uh, that a cricketer has to the cricketer that they watched um, growing up. Uh, I think you know part of Warren still can't quite believe that he's sort of talking to Ian Chapel. You know, having imitated Ian Chapel in the backyard at, at home, there is that sort of natural um, uh, kinship that uh, that he feels for a player who uh, had the reputation that uh, that that Ian Chapel had as a bit of a rebel. Uh, a guy who talked back to authority. Um, other parts of Warren do not marry up quite so well with, with Ian Chappell um, in the sense that, you know, Warren was a uh, prodigal individual who, um, who uh, didn't necessarily always look after himself and was pretty focused on his own performance. I, I think it would have been interesting to see Ian Chappell captain 
Warren. I think he would have been very effective. He's very effective in captaining absolutely everyone, but it wouldn't have been an instantly uh, natural marriage. Mm, absolutely. And and the other thing, of course, about Vaughan and uh, the era in which he played was that uh, he was on TV. And, yeah. you know, that was such a huge difference for yeah. everyone who yes. saw him. And you, as you so evocatively write about the, his leg spin in The Art mm. of Vaughan, I mean, it's it's almost, I'm sure you didn't do this, Gideon, but it's almost like you're watching a video clip of him at, say, 0.25x, and you're writing it. Obviously, you didn't do it, but it's... it's I don't know how to so... do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You, you've done it out of sheer observation. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that if anyone wants to uh, go back to write in detail about Vaughn, they have all these resources that they can use. Unlike, yeah. say, the book, that uh, lovely book you've written on um, Victor Trumper, and that photograph where you have yeah. that photograph. And yeah. That's it. Yes, yeah. do. But in some ways, you know, Trumper is the first cricketer of the visual period. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he's the first cricketer who was interpreted chiefly by visual means and can be apprehended now by those means. It just so happens to be one photograph um, of which we have made a lot because there is a, otherwise a great scarcity of, of images about him. Where Warren's concerned, you're right, we have a super abundance of, of material to, uh, to work with. And, you know, it is true to say that I did look at that YouTube video of the ball of the century a lot, a lot. You just can't, you can't help it. Uh, and I wasn't doing it simply for um, critical analysis. It was pure recreation. It's a wonderful thing to watch. No matter how many times you watch it, it is amazing. And in some ways you notice something slightly different each time. It really does repay inspection so a little bit of a digression here do you think it was the ball of the century as far as a moment is in time is concerned for it being his first ball in the ashes for it being um for him having bought a reputation a reputation that preceded him uh for him to land it so perfectly for him to uh to have the chutzpah to actually try and bowl his best ball first up, I think, I think there's a good argument. I think there have certainly been better balls bowled, but perhaps no better ball at that particular moment with that set of preconditions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how did, how but, but it also the set the whole argument about the ball of the century, right? I mean, we can be cynical about what has happened since. I mean, there was a Man Mitchell Stark ball in a World Cup which was nominated as the ball of the century. So many things. But all that comes from this premise. The premise was set by this ball. Nobody thought of this definition even before. Yes. Yeah. So this basically gave cricket a new lexicon, a new word in the lexicon, a new term rather. And, and it's been abused since then, but we can't retrospectively sort of cut this down to size because it's been abused subsequently. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more, Mahesh. Couldn't agree more. And of course, by, by happening in the 90s, well, it did actually have the referent of the, of, the, of the previous century, didn't it? There's no point talking about a ball of the century bowled in 2001. Yeah. <laughs> got no, yeah. got yeah. 99 years to go before we can evaluate whether it's a, a fair claim. Uh, talking about the ball of the century and, and, uh, and one having this uh, evidence of video as well. The line that he writes is, you had to see Bradman to believe him. You had to see one again to believe him. So even with video... It is not enough. We needed the replays. We needed the pause and to go back. We had to see him again to believe him. Did I write yeah, that? Then, yeah, okay. you did. And you also oh, mentioned uh, Jonathan Agnew's uh, commentary for the ball of the century. Yes. Uh, when, yeah. And when he's in such utter disbelief and he himself yeah. has to see the replay to figure out what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think we all did. I think I was listening to the radio at the time and I just went, what? That can't be right. That can't be right. That just, that's, but then, you know, he made you believe the impossible. He made you believe that the unscripted must have been scripted. That takes me on another question. I know as a journalist, you preferred not to watch the TV replays while you were at the press uh, box, which means quite a lot of one's magic. You may not have got the full hang of it as you were watching it live because all of us needed the replay for, for to fully appreciate the magic of one. Well, I mean, I watched a fair bit of him on TV because I watched his away tours as well. So you got the opportunity to see him um, bowl there and uh, by video, uh, videogenic means. But yeah, I did have a, I had an absurd purist and objection to uh, to watching replays uh, until about two thousand and five, when I got one wrong. Actually, I I, I I twitted an umpire for having given a decision, and the, the replay proved that the player had actually nicked it. I thought, yeah, I'm going to have to get with the program now. I think. But but the thing about television, though, and again, another fascinating point that you make is how. The first half of Juan's career, when he was so, you know, when the spin was so exaggerated and when you saw the sideways movement, mm. uh, the two-dimensional vision on t- on TV actually helped that. And how yes. the second half of Juan's career, where he was more about control and uh, mm. varying his pace and the, also the, not, the extent of spin that he imparted, yes. how... TV wasn't as friendly towards that. And that was fascinating. Do you think television you know, tends to be more partial to some spinners than others. Like someone, I've always wondered why someone like Ashwin these days, uh, you know, is of course celebrated, but he's not glorified the way a Murali or a Vaughan used to be. Well, one of the things that fascinated me about Vaughan was that he was not secretive at all about his methods. I mean, not only did he submit himself to the daily interrogation of, uh, of, of, of TV, but he actually used to do exhibitions of his different deliveries. He'd show you how. You know, they're often, you know, they, they seem to be warned doing some masterclass every other day. And he thought, well, that's just the confidence of doing that. Um, the fact that he absolutely showcased all his wiles, uh, didn't care that you knew exactly what he was doing and you was prepared to go out and do it. Um, that gave him an aura uh, that, uh, that, that preceded him. He so enlarged his own legend that it became impossible to play Warren simply as any other leg spinner. You were playing against the man as, as well against the ball. Yeah, there was this uh, recent series, uh, India against Australia, where um, uh, Cam Green was making his debut mm. and uh, Ashwin was bowling and Shane Warren was on air and he was constantly making the point about how Ashwin has to slow things down because he needs to make the debutante think a bit more <laughs> in his head. Yeah. And each time Ashwin you know, quickly turned around and bowled. He said, no, slow down, slow down a bit more. He has to think, he has to think. And that reveals so much, isn't it? And you mentioned well, that in the book as well. Yeah, That was very much Warren's method, wasn't it? He had that little pause before he uh, before he came into bowl. I think I said something like, you know, only, only Harold Pinter has used the pause more effectively. But he kind of, he drew the action to, towards himself. He, he just gave you that little bit longer in your stance to think about what was coming your way, what might be coming your way, even if Warren hadn't intended it. Um, he was an absolute master of, 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 the, of the dramaturgy of, uh, of cricket. And as you call it, he switched. He was not on. He switched the rest of, rest of it off and, and yeah, brought yeah, all the yeah, to himself. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it was amazing to be in the crowd or in the press box 
and watch the the theatre of Warren being watched. You know, I can remember at times. I remember a, a test match I watched in the. I was downstairs in the MCG library um, during a test match in which Warren was bowling, and um, I can remember Warren coming on. And there, there'd been a conversation in the library beforehand about how various sort of old stages uh, were complaining about Warren. Bloody Warren's done this, done that. You know, he's a disgrace to to cricket. You know, he's a shame. Bring shame on Australia. But then when Warren started bowling, the everyone gathered around the television and everyone was completely silent because Warren was coming on and you daren't be anywhere else. You absolutely had to watch every single delivery. And the great thing about test cricket we often say is that your concentration in the course of a day can wax and wane. There are lulls and there are peaks and uh, you don't actually have to pay attention to it all the time. But with Warren, you actually had to. You had to be there because every ball contained the possibility of some concealed event. It's not just the ball, right? His walk back, yeah. his interactions with, with, with the fielders, as, as yeah. you mentioned. It was like being cornered in a dark alley by a neighborhood gang and having the only <laughs> escape blocked by the biggest bruiser of all, looming out of darkness, green and gold knuckle dusters, gleaming in a distant streetlight. It's like, it's an image that, that readily strikes a chord with everybody who's been in that situation. I, I mean, if this is what I feel, imagine a batsman who's been in that position. Like yeah. if, if Daniel Cullinan had to read it, he would readily sort of relate to it. <laughs> and well, there it was, was another. To be there. It was going to. It was going to be watching that too, because you knew at least you weren't the target. Um, so you were sort of you were complicit in the intimidation of others because you stood aside and did nothing. Yeah, and and apart from the batsman, there was also the umpire there, right? And again, yeah. which you mentioned, how uh, scannily he ended up using and uh, interacting with the umpires. I recently, actually, um, last year interviewed Steve Buckner and I asked mm-hmm. him about uh, Shane Warne. And Steve Buckner said Shane Warne was very interesting because uh, he would bowl a ball, he would appeal, and then, uh, you know, you'd say not out. Then he'd come back and say, yeah, actually, that was the right decision. It wasn't mm-hmm. out. And it's yeah. almost like he's telling you, yeah, I know it's yeah, not out, yeah. but I had to appeal. And then he would say... And he would he would just mention that the next one's going to be a slider. And yeah. Steve Buckner said he wasn't telling me that, but he was saying it in my presence. And yeah. obviously, it comes through. So he said all Shane Warne was exceptionally challenging to umpire against because of all these things that he used to bring in. Oh, uh, he used to play Rudy Kurtzen like a fruit machine, didn't he? I mean, he just he was just so good. You could see them laughing together. <laughs> That's a funny one, Rudy. And uh, you know, next ball. And Rudy loved doing the slow death. Rudy became part of the theatre as well. Exactly. So, in fact, I, I don't know why. I was recently looking, uh, obviously, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have even struck me before 2016, but I was le- recently looking at a video where Vaughan is talking to the umpires and this, and there was some part of him that reminded me so much of Donald Trump. I don't know why. <laughs> like, this is the kind of thing Trump would do if he was a leg spinner. Yeah. You're selling you some real estate. Yeah, <laughs> but very charming if you're on the receiving end of it. You know, you want Absolutely. to be you want to be in the party. You don't want to be hanging around the the fruit bowl waiting for someone to ask you to dance. Warning wraps his arm around you and says, "Come on in, join us. It's fun." Absolutely, and and as you said, I mean, there was no, uh, there was no, um, it wasn't cheating at, per se. No, it was no, just no. part of the game. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I also think it's also his personality, right? It represents the fact that he was this global cricket citizen and that represented in the way he he sort of praised Lara or even Sachin, for instance, which he didn't have to do at all. Sachin was stonking him around the corner. It was a, a stake for his reputation at large because this was built as a contest of the century even by someone like Ian Chappell. It's very easy for me, for him to have been uh, sort of, you know, withdrawing in, into his shell. But he rather embraced Sachin. He said, this is the guy who took me on. So that yeah. spirit comes through yeah. even in the way he interacts with umpires. You know, he, he's never the one who's going to be sulking about a bad umpiring decision. He's not the one. Funnily, he does that as a commentator, which is very exactly. different from what he was yeah. as a player. But as a player, that kind of represented the spirit with which he played the game. I don't think it was particularly cunningly tactical. No, no. I think he... Um... I think the other thing is too that he was he was always up for the fight even in even in adversity. Uh, John Buchanan, with whom he had a you know rather tense and tortuous relationship, once said to me that in two thousand and one, Warren was the last Australian player to give up, even though he was under the cosh all the time and not bowling at his best and probably only partly fit. He was the one who rallied players at, at every break and kind of tried to convince them the series was was still there for winning. Now, there was there's something indomitable about Warren's spirit that that he could continue, that he didn't become so obsessively focused on his own performance that he didn't forget his obligations to the team. That's another part that you cover, especially when you're talking about the bowling spells. You you in fact rarely sort of zone in on the highlights in this book, and and that yeah. goes well within the territory. But to the extent that you had to highlight the two spells that you pick are the Hobart '99 and the Newlands '2002 hmm. about about those sort of long hardworking spells. It's one of those things that's always neglected about these great bowlers. Like even like someone like Dennis Lilly, for instance, you only remember the highlights package, but the real legend is actually in doing the hard yards, in bowling 70 overs when things were not working out well for you, in bowling 45 overs, I think 36 of them in in succession when things yeah. were not going well for you. And these are grossly underappreciated about most of the great players, particularly someone like Juan who appears magical. I can remember a spell that he bowled at Perth in 2006 in the second innings. Um, he seemed to bowl most of the day that day. It was incredibly hot and the pitch was incredibly flat. And Alistair Cook made 100, but Warren just whirled away gamely um, for over after over after over. I think he ended up with, you know, one for 100 or something like that. And then McGrath came through with the second new ball and took three quick wickets and I actually thought, you know, that's people will not remember this spell at all. You know, this is, but I, I, I remember thinking at the time, I must watch this because I think that Warren's retirement is just around the corner. I must commit this to memory because I want to be able to tell future generations about it. Maybe that was the moment at which I thought that, um, or the the germ of uh, on Warren came together. You know, I was I was conscious of watching something pass before me that was special that I'd like to be able to explain to others. So, Gideon, um, there is, of course, uh, this uh, art of Warren, which is like the uh, extraordinary chapter in itself. But then there's also the next chapter, which you have, which is the men of Warren. Hmm. And, uh, you know, where you pick out uh, cricketers who you feel you know, you can talk about in relation to Vaughan, whether it's Stuart mm. McGill or Steve Waugh. Yes. Uh, was, was there a temptation to pick uh, cricketers outside Australia, say a Tendulkar, a Murali? You do mention the murali Vaughan uh, battle, but was there, or, or you didn't think about it? No, I said I probably could have done I could have done a lot of things. Uh, I think, I, did I pick five cricketers? Maybe I was just thinking because there were going to be yeah. five chapters, pick I picked four. five cricketers. Oh, yeah, four, yeah. Five, yeah. Pick four. 
yeah. or was it? Oh, look, you know, I can't even remember what was passing through my head at the moment. I've had a, you know, two-year-old child crawling around the floor. Um, I was in a, we, my my wife and I were living in a small flat as my as my house was being renovated. So I wrote the book on my lap. I didn't even have a desk. Uh, so, you know, it was just a question of getting the thing done. There's a very clear theme to that, right? He picked his bowling partner, McGrath, with whom he had to split the wickets. So, yes. like, if when you compare it, I mean, in a way, it was addressing the Murli comparison without directly taking to Murli. Yeah, that's so right. That's right. Saying, you know, Murli had all the ten wickets for himself to pick, but yes. you know, yeah. one had to split it with uh, with McGrath. The other one was with McGill, where there was always a constant comparison that when they played together, he had the better figures, and that's then right. he kind of contextualizes why that was the case. You only that's two spinners on a wicket where where there's help for spinners. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I've always been kind of fascinated by the by the interpersonal dynamics of a of a cricket team, and somehow we we imagine that statistics are a sort of a um, an impartial witness, and we're kind of oblivious to the circumstances under which they're created. So, yeah, it was an opportunity to explore general cricket themes through the medium of Warren. Yeah, and that that McGill comparison is uh, amazing because you pick out so many strands in there. And mm. you also mentioned how people, you know, conveniently say when Morn and McGill played together, McGill had the better stats. Yeah. But, you know, there's also the opposite of that, which mm. is also important. When Vaughn played in unfriendly conditions where you could pick only one spinner, yes. he yep. had the better deal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think the other thing about Vaughn was that he liked being the only spinner. He liked being one out against the opposition. He loved those odds. Uh the idea of it wasn't it wasn't a matter of him begrudging sharing the limelight, but he loved being the guy, um, the big dog. Um, so it suited his personality to to be the solitary spinner in a in a team. Yeah, and it completely goes against the grain of uh, you know spinners bowling in tandem, doesn't yeah, it? Because he yeah. liked bowling in tandem with the fast yeah. bowlers. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess also because a fast bowler allowed him a little bit more time to um, mm-hmm. to uh, you know recover after an over. Um, uh, the rhythm of cricket's always kind of fascinated me. The um, the uh, the way in which fast bowlers and and slow bowlers can operate in harmony, with the fast bowlers creating a rough for spinners to bowl into. Um, Sometimes spinners can bowl their overs too quickly and not give fast bowlers an opportunity to recover. Um, uh, I know I've, I've sometimes I've heard fast bowlers complain about spinners getting through their overs too quickly. There is something. There are all sorts of dimensions to the game that we're we, we, that can't be quantified by statistics. That are nonetheless kind of pretty significant. Yeah, and especially I mean, reading this book it sort of makes almost makes a case for the fact of cricket being an individual game which is just happens to be played by a team because mm. there's so many instances where if you take Vaughan's relationship with Steve Waugh or his relationship with Buchanan and it's yeah. almost like he is doing his thing while his team is also you know there but yeah. you know that that's a fascinating interpersonal relationship especially that whole thing about the world cup in 99 and the west indies uh, tour before that mm. i mean it's so apparent that there was a clear schism there and yet they they won they won they drew the series mm. and they won the world mm. cup mm. well they loved winning games you know, and <laughs> ultimately they were capable of sublimating all their differences because they all loved winning games so so you think do you think that a, a bit too much is made about the fact of you know, all for one and one for all and cricket being a team game and things. You think there's a bit of 
it's overdone? Oh, for sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I play cricket every weekend and, you know, I'm obsessed with my own performance. <laughs> it's, um, uh, I'm disappointed if I fail, um, whether the team wins or not. Um, I mean, I do like winning games too, um, but ultimately I know that, uh, that my day will be influenced very significantly by the, the instant feedback that I get about how well I've done. And, and any cricketer who says otherwise is kind of having you on a bit. So, so yeah, I mean, I only ask that because we hear, or at least we used to hear before Sandpaper Gate, we used to hear a lot about the Australian way. We don't hear that often now, I guess. I guess it's yeah. softened a bit, but maybe. But that's a, that's the other thing point. about this book, right? It's constantly nagging away at this almost self-congratulatory image of Australia, not just in cricket. And he's, he's constantly, I mean, he's not set out to break all those myths, but he's constantly questioning everything that Australia considers about itself. Like hmm. Australia always, you know, likes winning. I'm like, who doesn't like winning? Anybody who plays the sport likes winning. Australia always looks at it at itself as a one who who doesn't cheat, but but there's no history to that, and there's no history to somebody else not being a cheat or whatever. So like this notion of so Australia's almost insular belief of itself is is being consistently pounded right through this book, including Steve Waugh's uh, glorification of the baggy green. And uh, and even the doping test, for instance, which uh, which you know, Australia prides themselves on being ahead of the game, right? Basically, Matthew Hayden complains that that Shobhakta and Mohammed Asif got away lightly, but because we we had a higher accountability for ourselves. Uh, beyond that, I think he calls the bluff on almost all those pet peeves or, or the pet sort of theories of Australia of itself. Yeah, and where the where the doping is concerned, where the where the diuretic is concerned, I think Warren was kind of self-deluding. Um, I think that uh, it's 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 the one sort of crime in or misdemeanor in his career that I can't really find any mitigating circumstances for, and his kind of bravado or his blaséness in in handling that challenge was uh, a bit of a function of where he was at at that time. Um, I'm pretty critical of of Warren in in those circumstances in a way that I think others were insufficiently critical. They kind of accepted him at his, as, at his word. Actually, that's that's a point that I want to raise, uh, particularly in the chapter on trials of Vaughan. Uh, like there are sort of controversies in which you're basically saying this is a mainstream opinion, which is too extreme against Vaughan. And you're basically pulling that back saying, consider the context. It is not that's so right. terrible. Like even the John affair, the, the sort of betting affair. Yeah, yeah. Affair. I think you try to be a little more sympathetic to him considering yeah. the public opinion of it. At yes. the same time, when it comes to the drug, you're basically saying the public opinion is a little too lenient. Let me yes. push it this way. Yeah. So how much of this contextualizing one's so-called sense is your steady state opinion of this is what I as Gideon Hick thinks, and also how much of it is saying this is the mainstream opinion, it's too much in the extreme, let me pull it back. I'm always doing that. <laughs> I'm always slightly at odds with mainstream opinion. Uh, story of my life, really. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, I'm always inclined to question what I what I see as a as a consensus. I think that where the where the um, uh, the Salem Malik affair was concerned, I thought that um, sort of our subsequent discoveries about match fixing retrospectively coloured 
our opinion of, of of what was taking place. It was, you know, it was quite a, you had to get back into the mindset of 1994. What exactly did we know about the um, about corruption in cricket at that time? Players and nations and boards were incredibly naive and, and unprepared for it. Um, and in some respects, Warren was incredibly naive, you know, being, you know, touring um, the, the subcontinent for the, for the first time, uh, these were guys who were completely unprepared and, and out of their depth um, and, you know, young men who were um, put in the way of temptation. Um, in some respects, he, he didn't do badly to, uh, to, uh, to, to stay out of more trouble. But where the, uh, where the doping was concerned, I thought the, the, the public relations campaign to play that down, you know, the interview with the current affair and... Um, you know, it's only a diuretic. It's um, it's not a performance-enhancing drug. My mum gave it to me. There was something really kind of corny about that, and um, and a bit. Uh, I thought it 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 showed Warren in his in his in his worst light, um, and it and amazingly, it seems to have been completely scrubbed from from his reputation since, um, as we're inclined to do with athletes in Australia. There's always some reason why um, our, our athletes are defended under circumstances of, of doping allegations because, you know, we'd never do that, would we? It's other countries who do. <laughs> yeah, and and there's also the, the counterfactual that you mentioned with the Salim Malik affair where, uh, you know, had Australia actually taken a serious step to, you know, come down hard yeah. on the players, then yes. who knows uh, how things would have panned out in the 90s. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, we still make those kind of mistakes in Australia. We still flinch from taking, you know, really harsh action. And then that leads us to get to a point where we have to take extremely harsh action, as we did in 2018, because we'd let it, we'd let it play out, we'd let it go on for so long that the, an attitude of impunity had developed and all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's, it's panic stations and, and only sort of year-long bans will, will satisfy us. In fact, I was thinking about it. This is the third time I'm reading the book. I had never made the connect between the South Africa series of 94 and the, and the fines imposed on Shane Warne and Mervy for their behavior for excessive appeal yeah. at that time. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, you, you contextualize it so beautifully. And in fact, I'm not sure if you realized it yourself because it's almost a replication of the 2018. So, I mean, 2018 was a replication of this yeah. on a much grander scale. I mean, you've written yes. a part of a book about it. Subsequently, you've written a book about the whole incident as well. And and one of the things that Steve Wall makes, I mean, it's, it's quite a statement to make where he says they had been belittled. I mean, the players had been belittled for the sake of board wanting the public sympathy. Yeah. That's exactly what happened in the case of Steve Smith. It's essentially, so there, there was an ICC penalty. There, there was a penalty imposed by the regulators of the game. Hmm. But the cricket board, which had been complicit in the poor behavior all along, all of a sudden yeah. is, is reacting to public sentiment yes. and going overboard on top of what's already been penalized. Mm. Of course, the scale with Steven Smith was much more, but the episode is exactly the same. So which also tells us how much has not changed with, with Cricket Australia. And somehow the administrators never take any responsibility at all. They're never held to account. Players always are. Yeah, I mean, uh, highly recommend reading um, Gideon's book on that whole affair and the Sandpaper Gate and all the and and it's also uh, tells you the bureaucratic uh, sort of background that also leads to these kind of uh, things happening. Um, so, 
Gideon, talking about one thing I must mention though, uh, and it's I don't think I've ever seen you as uh, vehement about anything as much as Paul Barry's book about Shane Warne. Um, that that book that book really uh, does things to you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was just pointless. It was a pointless exercise. I mean, if you're going to write about Warne, at least you have to make some token effort to understand his what he does so well and more and Barry doesn't it's it's sort of it's scraping the bottom of the of the barrel the funny thing was that I actually I sought permission to quote that book from Barry and he wouldn't give it to me because I'd given it such a such a harsh review when it had come out yeah I mean that that is a review that I will link and you should all read I mean that's a review that basically tells you exactly what a reviewer thought of the book. And, uh, you know, there's no there's no hiding in that one. It's no. just straight up reverse swinging Yorker. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, must have been a bit of a challenge. I mean, I, again, you probably tell me you didn't think of it at all, but must have been a bit of a challenge of how much to include from Vaughan's um, sexcapades and how much to leave out. Uh, yeah. given that you were largely focusing on the cricketer. But you also do mention a lot of it in a nuanced perspective, saying uh, people cared too much for something they actually shouldn't have. Well, I mean, Warren said that all along, didn't he? Warren said, well, this is my business, not yours. Um, yeah, sure, I stuffed, stuffed up, but, you know, what's it got to do with you? And I think the strange thing is that he actually dragged the public around to his point of view. In the 1990s, we tended not to have very much else to worry about. I've always thought. Um, we tended to get scandalised very, very easily. I think maybe after 9-11, that was a sort of a jolting um, uh, reassertion of, of, of perspective and, and proportion. Maybe that had an effect on our um, news values, that we were actually capable of, of seeing uh, that there were, some things were tragic and some things were ghastly and some things were awful and some things were scary. Uh, and the escapades of a, of a cricketer, by comparison, a, a relatively small beer. Now, periodically, the tabloids go back to Warren now and try to try to find some you know, some sort of misdemeanour or some sort of indiscretion. They they last a mayfly's life, don't they? These stories. Uh, no one is surprised by anything Warren gets up to now, and frankly, nor should they be. And, and the astonishing thing is that uh, you mentioned this, and I've, uh, there are also other places that mention it, that irrespective of what whatever he was up to, he was still performing on the field. Yeah. And, you know, there was this incident where he went to, he was playing for Hampshire, he went to London, and then there was all these stuffed toys and all that scandal that broke <laughs> yeah. out. But the fact yeah. is that the very next day, he took seven for 99 and won them a match. It's a great, it's actually, the, the story that Warren tells in his own autobiography is brilliant. You know, he, it, yeah, it's funny and sort of stupid and silly. But, you know, he talks about driving back to the ground and, you know, sort of putting the seat down and trying to get a couple of hours sleep before he goes out to play. He was always ready to play, no doubt about it. And who knows whether he played any better or any worse for, for a lack of sleep and a bit of an excess of testosterone. 
Yeah, but that's the thing, Gideon. Um, is it also a cultural thing and got to do with the eras as well? Because when people talk about uh, Gary Sobers or Viv Richards, it's almost as if they're hailed for their excesses. Like they drank yeah. till 5 a.m. in the morning, yeah. went out there, scored 100. Gary Sobers even writes about how he was inebriated on, in his final innings when he yeah. played. Yeah. And that seems to be like a bit of a glorification. But with Vaughn, it's almost like uh, so much negative there, right? Well... Thing was that I think that the, the 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 ground, as perhaps it is for these other players, was a refuge. You know, it was it had complications, uh, but ultimately um, he had the skill to get through them. Uh, in, in the end, it was it was a it, the, the career ground is an area of of great but finite possibilities, and Warren had the um, had the experience of uh, of having prevailed in similar circumstances and an expectation of ongoing success, so that was that was the one area, this bordered reality, where he was always in control. It was whether other aspects of his life were often on the brink of chaos. It's also a reflection of the society, right? Someone like Ian Botham or Gary Sobers, their excesses were celebrated because uh, one. Drinking escapades are fine, right? I mean, even Australia as a society prides itself on on the drinking binge of its cricketers. But the moment it comes to sex escapades, extramarital affairs, anything to do with that, the society gets extremely moralistic. And yeah. in the case of one, even like the trials of one, he's basically taken three instances. Uh, one of them is the is the bookie match fixing thing, and the second one is is uh, is the affair with the nurse, which which got the tabloid mm. on an overdrive in England. And the third one is the is the drug offense in, in the 2003 World Cup. And if you look at it, the easiest sort of uh, controversy to defend here is the second one, which is about the sixth yeah. pace. We had no business in it. As he mentions, I only wish to watch him play cricket. I didn't want to marry him. Hmm. So to the extent that anybody had a problem with it, it should have been his wife and family and nobody else. Yeah. But for the rest of the society to have so much emphasis on that, to the exclusion of other more critical things about a sportsman itself, is more a reflection of the society than the person. Yes. But what I found particularly uh, interesting here is a distinction that he makes between the tabloid culture of London or England versus here, where they make all these things. They are more sort of keen on exposing these things, but they move on pretty quickly. It's a two-day affair for them. Whereas it's a two-year affair for Australia to process the implications of it, mm. which I found surprising. I thought Australia as a society was a lot less prudish than England. Yes. But it seems to be the other way around when it comes to all these things. Yeah, Warney, despite the fact that um, many of these tabloid scandals originated from England, always felt that he got a fairer deal from the media in England than he did in Australia. We were more inclined to, to posture and to, and to bloviate here about what this might tell us about Warren, where in fact it actually told us very little about Warren, comparatively speaking. That was one of my arguments with the, with the Barry book, was that uh, he, tried to, he tried to have it both ways. He tried both to sort of deplore the tabloid culture but he also kind of reveled in it and he used it as his raw material. And I don't think, I thought that was kind of disingenuous from, uh, from Barry, who is actually otherwise quite a reputable journalist. But I thought at that point was kind of running out of figures in Australia that he could write scandalous biographies about. He'd previously written books about Alan Bond and, uh, and Kerry Packer and, and James Packer. Uh, and, you know, he, he sort of thought he'd add um, worn to the to the notches on his uh, on his on his bedpost, uh, and it didn't really work. The formula didn't work for Warren. There are different rules for a for a, for a sportsman, um, and you actually, like I said before, you have to make some sort of 
effort at finding out why they are so good before you can tell us how bad they are. And 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 uh, towards the you know the end of this career, I mean, there's this part four that you mentioned, the Vaughn Mark Four, where mm. you know he's talking, he's basically pretty much going on to the IPL and winning Rajasthan Royals a championship mm-hmm. and also, you know, moving on from test cricket and one-day cricket, but mm-hmm. still a kind of this presence that Australians are very, very still interested in. It's not like they've moved on from him. No. And there is that uh, moment in the comment, uh, when he's mic'd up in that T20 game, Big Bash, yes. and that becomes a big deal. It's it's mm-hmm. it's And it's almost like, they were wanted to hold on to him that much longer, right? They did, and and Warren wanted to hold on to them too, because once Warren stopped playing, he didn't have the opportunity to go out and prove that he was Shane Warren. There was a certain pathos about Warren once he finished. Um, he'll always be Shane Warren, but he won't have the uh, the scope to go out and demonstrate it. Um, so there's something there's something a little bit melancholy about that. Warren still in the commentary box still talks as though he's still playing. He's one of those commentators who you almost feel could convince himself that he was up to going out there and doing the job himself. Other players detach much more easily. My friend Mike Atherton will say that he, the minute that he stopped playing, he stopped. He, he could understand the position of the players, but he had, but he wondered that he'd ever been a player at all. Uh, Warren still, if you listen to him, he still speaks about himself in the present tense. Uh, he belongs actually to that that Jeff Boycott school that um, that that still thinks that uh, you know um, he could go out and do it tomorrow. Yeah, and, and during the Sydney Test when uh, India were chasing a really really improbable total, he was still like, yeah, they they're gonna go for it. They're going for it. They should yeah, be going yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> In fact, a like part of was... that was explained away as as sort of pressure from the producers to hype up uh, a contest as a chase. I was very cynical of that because, I mean, even reading this book, for instance, the Adelaide 2006 test, one had the same spirit. He thought this could be done on the last day when everybody thought this was a draw. He thought this could be done. So that's a consistent theme with him as a player. So, like, you could have that cynicism about some other commentator, but not one because that's just the way he's always thought. Yeah, that's what he does. That's what he does. And that's why they have him. And that's why he still has value as a commentator. I, I think that he does his best commentary when he's surrounded by... F- foils to to his um, to his native ebullience. I think when he's you know sandwiched between Nasser Hussain and Mike Atherton, he's a fantastic commentator. Um, there's a, there's a degree of sort of mutual respect and mutual affection, and and he's 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 quite incisive. He says the the unexpected thing, the thing that kind of that that cuts through, that uh, that 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 connects. I think sometimes in Australia. He's sort of surrounded a bit by enablers and, and sycophants, which uh, which pander to his worst instincts. Yeah, I was um, the uh, other thing that I've wanted to touch upon is that um, I, I actually happened to meet Vaughn a few years ago when he was with uh, when he was in the US promoting that series with Sachin that oh, yeah, uh, yeah. stars yeah. or whatever series that was all stars. And uh, I happened to ask him about uh, the 2001 series. You know, we're celebrating yeah. the 20-year anniversary of that. And uh, he said an interesting thing. He said, you know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, there's this impression that I bowled badly in that series. Mm. But he said, I actually bowled well. 
And, yeah, yeah. and he said the Calcutta test when Lakshman and Dravid batted all day, he said through the day, I, I felt I bowled really well. Yeah. But their batting was so good that mm. they were just getting me away. And so he said there was so many moments in his career like that when, you know, his lack of success was equated to him not bowling well, yes. when yes. that was probably not true at all. Yeah, yeah. I thought in that series, and I've watched quite a lot of that series subsequently, I mean, he um, he's just short of fitness, I think. So he's capable of bowling five good balls in and over, but he's going to give you that release ball. I think he also, in the course of that series, became very obsessed with deviation and bowling into the rough from from around the wicket. And, of course, Indian batsmen love that opportunity to free their arms and and manoeuvre the ball around the field. So he probably wasn't bowling exactly the way that he should have against against Laxman. I always thought that when he bowled in T20s in in India – um, for, for Rajasthan Royals, because of the inhibitions on the on the lines that he could bowl, he was actually forced to bowl with less spin and more wicket to wicket, and that perhaps was always the way that he should have bowled under those conditions. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Though uh, having said that, in two thousand four, when he came back, he bowled pretty well. Uh, and that first well. test in Bangalore, yeah. he got Lakshman LBW as well, and that was a good series for him. And he got a six. Wicket. Funny, isn't it? We remember two thousand and one, but we don't remember two thousand and four. <laughs> Which is the series Australia won. I know, no, yeah, yeah. It's Cr- the cricket's always better when Australia <laughs> lose, Sid, let's face it. And that's what happens when you have a stand-in captain. The narratives go for a toss. You had to have Ricky Ponting. That would have been like, yeah. okay, this is a final frontier. What Steve couldn't achieve, Ricky Ponting came and achieved. But you have Gilchrist <laughs> captaining, nobody cares. Even Gilchrist yeah. didn't care to build up his legend. <laughs> it, it was marketing. It was ultimately marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 2001 had that quality of being the first time. It had been really big, hadn't it? Mm-hmm. It was, you know, in India won in 98, but we don't remember that series. But 2001, it just seemed like there was a concatenation of events and personalities and the, the different trajectories of the different teams met at exactly the right moment, a little bit like 2005 in, uh, in England. Absolutely. And, and uh, though one thing about 2004, though, had that last day in Chennai not been rained off... Yes. And had India some managed to win that test, yes. then you were looking at a 2-2. So yep. maybe that could have been a thing. But the last day was rained off. And then, you know, maybe, may, I'm just saying, those little things could have added to the legend as well. God, it was beautifully set up, wasn't it, that last day in Chennai? Oh. <laughs> but perhaps we should do a series on the great days of test cricket that, that didn't happen. <laughs> yes. Mm. That would be brilliant. Yeah. What could have been? <laughs> yeah. Like the 1942 Ashes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bradman, Bradman could have got 3,000 runs. Or I wonder whether Bradman would even have played. Maybe he Oh, would. really? Maybe Oh, not. okay. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I think in 1948, he felt as though he had to because there'd been such a long hiatus between the last Test match. He felt an obligation to, to set cricket forth on its, on its post-war path. There'd been no war and there'd been a 1942 series... Would Bradman necessarily have welcomed the chance to go to, to England again? I, all sorts of fascinating imponderables. I think he wow. was really struggling in 1942 to go anywhere, or 1938 to go anywhere without his wife. Mm. I reckon there might have been an issue around the, um, the willingness of the board to accommodate Bradman's wife going to England in 1942. They did it very grudgingly in 1938, so maybe Bradman would not have toured. There you go. There's a, there's a counterfactual for you. Wow. 
<laughs> Actually, there is uh, yeah, a yeah. follow-up question on this. Given, I mean, I've asked this before as well. Given that you wrote on one, and that's a, that's not a topic that you would have readily chosen. Somebody gave you the idea. Yeah. But I'm reasonably sure one of your publishers would have given you an idea on writing a book on on Bradman, in in your own sort of unique vantage position where you're always taking a mainstream opinion and pulling it back from the extremes. Yeah. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but you're always conflicting. In some ways, you're also conflicting with your own self about Bradman. And that, yes, that would have probably yes. worked out quite well for a format like this. Have you have you considered that? I have contemplated it, but, uh, but I also, you know, I look at my own shelf on Bradman and there's just so damn much on it that, uh, that the idea of adding to the stress on the bookshelves, uh, I, I feel as though that's well-tilled ground. And I like to go places that that haven't necessarily been thoroughly explored, and uh, I might get around to it in, in due course. But but I don't feel any particular hurry. I feel as though the Bradman legend is evolving even now. You know, it's twenty years since he died. I don't think he looms anywhere near as large in Australian consciousness as, as he did in the later years of his life, when he became, when his reputation became kind of part of the recrudescence of Australian conservatism. Uh, I haven't seen where the legend's going to end up yet. So, uh, so I might uh, bide my time, which at least is not a outright rejection. So we mm. keep our hopes high, mm. and it'll eventually happen. I have written quite a lot about Bradman in bits and pieces here and there. So, uh, so I've 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 had my say, but uh, but you're right. I haven't um, I haven't done I haven't given up the unworn treatment, if you like. Yeah, I would love it. Right, there's a part of the uh, Bradman which is over over emphasized at the cost mm. of exploring a lot of other things. Like for instance. Yeah. I never appreciated his his role as an administrator, his productivity as an administrator. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you did a piece on the numbers, the number of meetings that he attended, the numbers. Yes, yeah. You know, like that, that kind of gives a perspective of Bradman that very few people know. I mean, we always remember his numbers from the uh, from the cricket yeah. days, yes. and and the post Packer revisionism of his time as an administrator, yes. thanks to Ian Chappell and and all the mm. further mm. generation of cricketers mm. putting his role on administrators on the spot, but. But you're always constantly sort of moving the overhyped parts to the lesser hyped parts and the lesser hyped parts to the you know to the center. So I would have loved to see that sort of balancing act uh, exclusively on Bradman. Well, I make up my own mind about things. I don't think it's as though I set out to uh, to challenge conventional wisdom. It's just that I've got no interest in conventional wisdom. I, I just you know, I want to I want to work it out for myself. But you're also talking with your own sort of images, right? Even with Kerry Packer, for instance, I'm sure your opinion on what you wrote about Packer and the influence on cricket in cricket war has changed quite dramatically. I mean, now everybody's quoting your book and I know you've changed your own opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of funny. But you're also always sort of battling your own opinions over time. Yeah, that's true, actually. In 1993, I mean, uh, there hadn't really been any significant writing about, um, about World Series cricket since the time. And I think... I detected an undercurrent of kind of disapproval, even retrospective disapproval of uh, of which had kind of embedded itself in in conventional wisdom that uh, you know the pajama game had ruined everything about cricket and uh, nothing was sacred and and I thought well you know that actually doesn't tally with my own recollection or the part that that Packer cricket played in my own upbringing so maybe it's time for me to uh, to to reacquaint myself with the with the subject and. And have us create a second draft of, of of history, but I think since then, perhaps the um, the general consensus has teetered over too far in the other direction. That um, that the uh, that events were now seen as a sort of an unmitigated good. In fact, they had all sorts of entailments that even now we're only coming to terms with. 
So just going back to Bradman and bringing the discussion back to Vaughn, one of the reasons why uh, Bradman, I felt Bradman's legend endured for so long was also his um, reticence and yes. his lack of being in the public space. Yes. And so there was the aura that could build. But someone like Vaughn and you know any cricketer these days, there's so much in the public sphere and so much in you know social media and there's so much in there. Uh, is it likely that their aura and their legend is going to endure as much or would it just be going from one generation to the next? Well, of course, one thing that we do have the advantage of with Warren is we have a lot of we have a lot of visual material to work with and visual material has cut through that writing does not. I mean, it is very easy for, um, you know, a 10-year-old kid these days to go to YouTube and find an awful lot of Warren to watch. So you can see what the, what the fuss was about. Much more difficult to do so where Bradman's concerned than virtually impossible where Trump is concerned. So there is a degree of, uh, there's the possibility of a self-perpetuation of, uh, of, of legend. What's probably the, the, um, uh, uh, the other possibility is that people get sick of it, that they, that they, that, that Warren kind of becomes too pervasive and spreads himself too thin and becomes repetitive and, and a bit of a bore to, to listen to. And that, you know, that, that potential is very real. Um, so Warren has to be on guard against that. I'm not, I'm not sure that he is on guard necessarily against that, but, uh, but it, is a, it is a possibility. People can easily get sick of you if you don't have some degree of kind of self-awareness. Has he expressed uh, any thoughts about the book? No, not really. I, don't, I, doubt, I very much doubt that he's read it. I know he's signed some copies, which um, which is unusual for him. He certainly wouldn't sign the Paul Barry book, but uh, but I think enough people have told him that it's a, you know, it's a it's a it's a sympathetic take on him that he doesn't kind of resent it. You know, I come across Warren from time to time, and he's always perfectly pleasant, as he's always been. He's actually a very easygoing, accessible, uh, approachable bloke um yeah i was surprised when he agreed to talk to me because yeah. i'd never met him before yeah. yeah he's always been very generous where the where the media is concerned he's subtly contemptuous at the same time but uh, but not begrudging he recognizes that um that they've played an important part in his fame and that he has to continue feeding the beast as it were so i mean of course social media has relieved him of the day-to-day -day chore of dealing with journalists, he can deal with the public more directly. We mustn't forget that that's also intensely mediated in, a, in an authorised way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, uh, the, the last uh, chapter, of course, rounds things off so well, um, you know, and, uh, and the thing of Gideon is that it's amazing how the number of political kind of analogies you're drawing through the book um, yeah. yeah, and and uh, I had not heard of a few po politicians who you're quoting there. So it's also it was also a great learning for me to actually go and search out these guys and what what they said and what they did. So uh, thank you for educating me on Australian and other <laughs> politics no as well. I can't, I can't even remember what you're talking about, Sid. <laughs> anyway, it's so long. It's all a bit of a blur. You know, it's a month in 2012. Bloody hell. Still talking yeah. about it. Did you, did, did you read, read that book ever again after writing it? No. When was the last time you even browsed it? I don't know. I never read my own books. It's too depressing. You you only ever see the 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 um, the solecisms and the um, and the and the and the gaffes and uh, no. I mean, I'm a, I'm a I'm a classic journalist. Once it's written, there's nothing I can do about it. So I might as well just 
forget it and move on. Yeah, I, I'm imagining you wouldn't have. <laughs> that's the thing about your journalism and writing, right? You always said your journalism sub- subsidizes your your book writing, and and even in the piece that you wrote about uh, writing a piece for Night Watchman, for instance, you talk about how mm-hmm. journalism is is in the moment, and a lot of pieces that you, you you are always filled with regret after you send it out. But with books, oh, you don't sure. have that problem. You you can afford to wait, but you don't choose to wait. You still choose to do it in 31 days. Well, I mean, I also think that. Um, uh, yeah, journalism is kind of inherently disposable and um, you know, everyone's got an opinion and mine's no more valid than anybody else's. I'm just a happen to have a, 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 a way of getting it into, um, into a mainstream audience. But you know, in the end, it's pretty perishable. And uh, I'd hate for people to play back to me some of the opinions that I've, that I've held in the past. Uh, I'm, there's a lot to be thankful for about its, uh, its, its disposability. The internet never forgets, Gideon. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to be thankful for where paywalls are concerned, actually. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Paywalls. Yeah, which in fact, paywalls uh, are also a negative in many ways because, uh, you, re- uh, you know, whenever I want to share a piece of yours, it's so difficult to share because <laughs> unless people's, people actually go and pay for the subscription, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this covers quite a lot. Mahesh, do you have anything else to add? No, just uh, your, your final thoughts on on uh, your objective of this one. You you say that you set out to basically reclaim him as a sportsman. Yeah. Were you, I know you, you haven't gone back, but but were you happy with the effort? I know you, you never really, really sort of evaluate yourself, but but were you happy with the objective of reclaiming him as a sportsman, which, which many books on one didn't tend to do? Well, I think you know, my main priority is always to enjoy myself in, in what I'm writing. Um, and where Warren's concerned, you should always be enjoying yourself. He's a cricketer that's all about enjoyment. Uh, he's all you know, chock full of fight and, and game for any challenge. And you know, something for a cricketer, and I'm a you know I'm a cricketer who's still playing. Something I just you just go you know wow that's just amazing that he day in day out just threw himself. Uh, into the the ultimate challenge and and came out on top more often than not. Um, I, I'm you know sort of unstinting in my in my admiration for that. And if that sort of didn't get your juices going as a as a cricket writer, then you know you can find better ways to to spend your time. So I enjoyed that month very much. Uh, but you know once it was done, it was done, and I moved on to to other things. I'm more, you know, my my next project's always the most interesting thing that I've ever done in my career. And what is that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the book pretty much finishes with uh, the line, and I think it captures so much about the book that, you know, I essentially think, I mean, you quote, uh, I think, uh, William Hazlitt. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, I, and I think the book itself is uh, about mastery rather than about Vaughan or about yes. leg spin. Or, yes. it's, it's about the mastering of a craft, and it's uh, mm. so beautifully done. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know... I feel very fortunate to have lived through the Warren era. It was an important part of my upbringing, my my education in the game. And like I said, I'm sort of roughly the same age as Warren, just a little bit older. So I can remember going through the the 80s, being told about leg spin, um, being told that it was this amazing skill and that once you'd see it, you'd never forget it. But when you saw Australian leg spinners through that, that period, your Bob Hollands and your Peter Sleeps and your Jim Higgs's 
Um, they were kind of eccentrics. They were they were outliers. The leg spin didn't look like the kind of thing that would ever win you a test match except on a hugely turning pitch. But then all of a sudden, you know, when Warren appears, um, early 1990s, so almost 30 years ago, all of a sudden there was a leg spinner and it was every bit as good as people had always told you. You know, it was it was a uh, I, it was a myth made flesh, um, uh, a prophecy fulfilled, and for the next fifteen years we had the opportunity to see that prophecy play out. Yeah, that's that's probably also another reason why you know Indians of a much older generation still go slightly weak in the knees when you talk about Subhash Gupte. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. because Subhash Gupte was the classical leg spinner, and yeah. India hasn't had that classical leg spinner yeah. since, I mean, whether it's Chandra or Kumle, they've all been the unorthodox variety. Mm, so, mm, mm. Yeah, so there is there is a charm to the classical leg spin yes. category. So yeah, can we offer absolutely. our own spin on this? Shane was the Indian classical leg spinner accidentally born as an Aussie. Oh, <laughs> the there, uh, Mahesh. <laughs> yeah, Why talking not? about which, uh, Gideon, uh, just uh, uh, we like to finish off by asking the writers who come on for a recommendation for one book. It could be any book across, uh, you know, a cricket, obviously, but uh, it could be okay. anything. So uh, that doesn't mean it's the best book you've read. It's just a recommendation. Okay, hang on, I'll have a look behind myself. Uh, by uh, the way, for those who can't see, there is uh, Mag- the Gideon's magnificent bookshelf that uh, we are looking at right now, and he's peering at it to see uh, what he well, can pick uh, out. Wisdom uh, almanacs are not allowed, Gideon. That's disqualified. So the first time I, I read a piece on Gideon's favorite book was uh, was uh, Derek Burley's uh, Social History of English Cricket. Or oh, it was well, what do you know? What have I picked out? Oh, and he's picked it out. <laughs> <laughs> Some cricket myths explored. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a kind of an important book in my kind of upbringing in the game. Uh, it's published in 1979. Um, this is the the sports pages edition from 1989. Uh, it's a it's a waspish take on cricket mythology, um, and you know the uh, cricket's capacity for deluding itself about just how pure it is and uh, and how upstanding uh, it's a look at cricket's relationship to to England and its various hypocrisies and it's not the greatest book ever written but it was a book that was formative in my attitudes to the game my my sort of desire to to question orthodoxies because Burley did it in such a um, refreshingly iconoclastic spirit that uh, that even if you didn't necessarily agree with him you were kind of captivated by his uh, his nerve and um, and uh, independence. We started by saying that I call myself an independent cricket journalist. Uh, there's lots of different ways to to define independence. Obviously, I'm not independent of Rupert Murdoch. I'm writing for him, but by the same token, no one no one has ever told me what to write at uh, at the Australian. And if they did, I wouldn't stick around to be told a second time because. I make up my own mind about things and, uh, you know, I, I play my own furrow, right or wrong, never in doubt. All right. Uh, thank you, Gideon. Thank you for joining. And this was wonderful. And uh, thank you for gracing our 100th episode. Congratulations on 100 episodes. 100 in anything is, uh, is, is worth celebrating. So it's been great to be part of it. Thanks. That brings us to the end of another episode of the 81 All Out podcast. If you enjoy the work we do, please support us via 
kofi.com that is ko-fi.com slash 81allout. You can find the link in the show notes. It will allow you to either set up a recurring monthly payment or to throw in a one-time contribution. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, all your contributions till the end of June will go towards COVID relief in India and we will match your contributions up to 800 US dollars. Stay safe and mask up. Goodbye.